Good morning. Our reading today is from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, Priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. The word of the Lord. Our world has been turned completely upside down so that just navigating life on a daily basis is really hard right now. There are all kinds of new realities that we're having to adjust to, and not just health realities, but economic realities, social realities, political realities, emotional realities. And in the midst of all these new realities, we're just trying to make our way through life. But in order to do that, there's something that we really need. What is it? The answer is pretty simple. In order to make way through life, we need to make sense of life. So for instance, you know, in this pandemic, we're just trying to make our way through this situation. But in order to do that, we need to make sense of it. Why is this happening? What does it mean? For instance, if if you think that this is a very real serious crisis that we're in right now, then you're going to respond one way. But if you don't think it's a very big deal, 
there's another way that you're going to respond. Those are two very different ways of making sense of what's happening right now. And it's not just this pandemic. This is all of life. All of us, we're just trying to make our way through life as best we can. But in order to make way through life, we need to make sense of life. And in order to do that, one of the most important things we need is we need an accurate picture of reality. We need an accurate picture of reality because we are all going to live our lives in the light of however we picture reality. So, for instance, even if you believe that this universe is nothing more than the result of a mindless, unguided, natural process, that there is no God and this world is all there is, that's still a picture of reality and you're going to live your life in light of that picture. So here's the question. How do we get an accurate picture of reality? Well, Revelation helps us. Now, it's a weird book. Uh, many people think of Revelation as a puzzle book. And the goal of reading Revelation is to crack the code so that you can unlock the events of the future. But there's a biblical scholar named Vern Poitras who actually puts this perfectly. He says, Revelation is not a puzzle book. It's a picture book. But Revelation helps us make sense of our lives, make sense of this world, and not just for the future, but for right now. How does it do that? We're just looking at the introduction this week. The very first section of this passage that we read this morning helps give us a roadmap to the rest of the book of Revelation by showing us three things. That God is giving us a picture of reality. Second, God is acting in reality. And lastly, that God does it because he wants to make us witnesses to reality. God gives us a picture of reality. He acts in reality, and he does it because he's making us witnesses to reality. All right? Let's take a look at this first point, that God is giving us a picture of reality. In order for us to understand the book of Revelation, we need to understand how it works. And here's what I mean. Whenever you open a book and start reading, Usually, right within the first sentence, the book is already giving you clues about how you're supposed to understand what you're reading. Let me give you a couple of examples. If you open a book and the first sentence says, once upon a time, then you know you're in the realm of fairy tale or folk tale. And, and you know from that that, um, that you're not going to read the rest of the book and expect book to give you scientific data. That would just be a wrong way of reading the book. You're not cooperating with it. Or if you open another book and it says, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. You read that and you know, well, this is more in the realm of historical narrative. So, you know, do you think that fairy tales and history books have specific things they're trying to communicate to us? Of course they do. But um, in order to understand what they're communicating, in order to receive those truths, we have to cooperate with the way that they're communicating to us in order to receive the truths that they're communicating. In the same way, we need to cooperate with the way that Revelation is communicating with us. When we read the first sentence in Revelation, it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that word revelation is the Greek word apocalypse, which literally means revealing or unveiling. In the ancient world, apocalypse was a very specific genre of communication. So just as fairy tales and history books have their own ways of communicating, so also apocalypse has its own way of communicating. 
And in order to understand what it's communicating, we have to cooperate with the way that it's communicating. The way that Apocalypse communicates with us is by means of images. So for instance, instead of giving us a propositional statement, for instance, something that says, God is all-powerful and exercises complete sovereignty over his creation. Instead of telling us something like that, Apocalypse gives us an image of a throne in heaven surrounded by a rainbow. That's actually from Revelation 4, and we'll look at that in a few weeks. But that's a very different way of communicating, isn't it? It's not a propositional statement. It's a visual image. Now, do you think that the statement is somehow truer than the image? Well, not at all. In fact, the image is able to take the truth of the propositional statement and actually make it more real to us so that we're not just understanding it with our mind, we actually feel it, we remember it, we experience it. Friends, revelation doesn't only operate at the level of reason. Revelation operates at the level of imagination. It's a visual world. And the reason it does that is because we have a problem. Our problem is that we look at the world around us and we think that we're getting an accurate picture of reality. We're not. The the images in the book of Revelation are God's way of saying, I want to show you what reality looks like from my perspective. Revelation is a visual world. And when we enter into that visual world of images, it helps us see an accurate picture of this world that we live in. One of God's main goals in the book of Revelation is to give us an accurate picture of uh, reality. He gives us images that give us an accurate picture of reality. Now, here's why this is so important. Whether you're exploring faith or whether you've been a Christian for decades, we all live in a world in which we are constantly being shaped by images whether through television or billboards or magazines or especially through social media, the images that fill our world have a powerful impact on the way that we picture reality. So let me give you a few examples. For instance, where do you find true happiness? The images that fill our culture are constantly telling us that in order to find true happiness, you got to have this TV or this smartphone or this car or this pair of shoes or this pair of jeans or this particular style of eyeglasses or whatever it might be. And we could say all day long, oh, I don't believe that true happiness is found in consumer goods, but look at our lives. Look at the world. Those images have a tremendous pull and power over us. Or let me give you another example. What is true beauty? The images that fill our culture are telling us that true beauty means looking a certain way or weighing a certain amount or having a certain body shape. And again, we could say all day long, oh, that's oppressive. We don't believe that's true. But those images are so powerful that they are having a profound impact in many of your lives. Or let me give you one more example. Um, What's best for society. The images that fill our cultures, especially the news shows and the the social media posts, are constantly telling us that what's best for society, that true human flourishing comes through a particular political party or political platform or political leader or political ideology. And ironically, you know, a lot of us actually do believe that that's true. But what's going on with all of this? All of those things are false pictures of reality. And yet the images are so powerful that, that they, they capture us. They get us 
to give ourselves to them. Willingly, we give ourselves to them. In fact, Revelation is telling us that we worship these things because the images are so powerful, they've convinced us this is where you find real life, which is actually a pretty good definition of sin. You know, in our world, sin is kind of a dead word. It doesn't really have much meaning in our world anymore. But Revelation is showing us that sin means being captured by false pictures of reality and worshiping those things instead of worshiping God. We need to be freed from these false pictures of reality. In Revelation, God is giving us counter images that give us an accurate picture of reality. Now, what are these images showing us? Well, that leads to our next point. We've just seen that God wants to give us a picture of reality, but second, we see that God acts in reality. Here's the next really important thing you need to know in order to understand the book of Revelation. Revelation is filled with hundreds of references to the Old Testament, and we need to understand those references in order to understand the book of Revelation. So it's kind of like, you know how hip-hop music works? You're, it, it, it uses samples from older songs. So you're listening to a song maybe and you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, where have I heard that before? And you realize, oh, that's from the Isley Brothers or oh, that's from James Brown. Hip hop takes samples from an older song in order to build a new song. In the same way, Revelation takes samples from the Old Testament uh, in order to communicate images to us that give us an accurate picture of reality. Now, I'm not going to go through all the images um, and, and samples uh, from the Old Testament that are in Revelation. We couldn't possibly do that. There are hundreds of them. But one of the first and most important ones is right here in verse 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. It says that Jesus is revealing the things that must soon take place. Now that is a sample from Daniel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, which is talking about God's purpose to establish his kingdom here on earth. The world we live in is a mess. We live in a world in which everything is falling apart, a world filled with evil and poverty and sickness and violence and death. And, and Daniel chapter 2 is one of many places in the Bible that talk about God's vision to bring healing and renewal to the world by establishing his kingdom on earth. Now, how does God do that? Well, if we continue along, verse 4 tells us. There's a formal greeting there. John says to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now that statement at the end is a description of God. It's actually God's self-description. But notice something very interesting about this. God describes himself like this. He says, him who is and who was. If we were to extend that pattern, we would expect it to say, and who will be. But that's not what it says. It says, who is to come. Th that is not a statement of being. That's a statement of action. In other words, God is not only telling us who he is, he's also telling us what he's doing. And what he's doing is he's coming into this world. He's acting in reality. Now, here's the million-dollar question. How does God come into this world? Well, verse 7 tells us. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. 
Coming with the clouds here is another sample. This one is from Daniel chapter 7, which talks about one like a son of man who comes with the clouds to destroy evil and establish God's kingdom here on earth. Friends, that is talking explicitly about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who's coming into the world. The way that God comes into the world, the way that God acts in reality, the way that God brings healing and renewal to the whole world is through Jesus Now, Jesus already came once in the past. So when it says that every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, that's another sample. That one is from Zechariah chapter 12. And that is actually talking about the historical event of the crucifixion. You see, Jesus came once in the past in order to begin his purposes on earth, but he's going to come again in the future in order to fulfill his purposes on earth. Now, here's why this is so important. Remember what we said, in in order to make sense of life, we need an accurate picture of reality. If this is giving us an accurate picture of reality— And I understand many of you may not be convinced by that. But if it is, then you realize this is giving us a radically different paradigm about what it means to connect to God. How do you connect to God? Uh, Think about this with me. Traditional religion says that if you want to connect to God, then here's what you have to do. Here's the path that you must follow. Here are the rules that you must obey. Here are the disciplines that you must practice. Here's the ethical system that you must follow. Traditional religion is all about what you must do in order to connect with God. In fact, many of you were probably raised in a way that you were taught this about religion. But the gospel is not about what you must do to connect with God. The gospel is about what God has done to connect with you. Or we could say it like this. In traditional religion, we're the ones who act, and and we're hoping that God will respond to us. But in the gospel, God is the one who acts, and we're the ones who respond to that. Because here's the thing. Think about this with me. The more significant the event, the more significant the response to that event will be. So for instance, um, God willing, we're going to get through this thing, and when we start going to the airport again, um, we're going to still have to take off our shoes before we go through security. Why do we do that? Because 19 years ago, something significant happened. And taking off our shoes is a response to the, significant, the significance of what happened 19 years ago. Or, you know, this pandemic is a real crisis in our world right now. And, and, and it's going to change the way we live in the world. We don't even know how yet, but years from now, when your grandkids ask you, hey, why do we do this, or why do we do that, you're going to tell them, well, because 40 years ago, something significant happened, and the way we live now is a response to what happened back then. Friends, 2,000 years ago, something significant happened that changed the course of history. The death and physical resurrection of Jesus Christ left a footprint in history so big that it swallowed up all of history in its wake. Jesus Christ came once again in the past to begin his purposes. He's coming again in the future to fulfill his purposes. And the big question is, how should we respond to that? Well, that leads to our last point. We've seen that God gives us a picture of reality. We've just seen that God acts in reality. But lastly, he does it so that we would become witnesses to that reality. You know, if you look at verses 1 to 2, it says that Jesus made this revelation known by sending his angel to his servant John, 
who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony, which is literally witness, of Jesus Christ. Now, many scholars believe that this John is actually the Apostle John who was one of the the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. And I tend to agree with that. And one of the main reasons is because of the emphasis in Revelation on bearing witness to Jesus. Bearing witness to Jesus is one of the main themes in the Gospel of John. It's also one of the main themes in the book of Revelation. So the Apostle John was an eyewitness to the life, death, and physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, you see that in verse 9. John says, I, John, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony, literally witness, of Jesus John was sent into exile. He was imprisoned on the island of Patmos because he was bearing witness to Jesus. And he's saying that when you become a Christian, you become a witness too. (laughs) Where does it say that? Well, if we take a look at verses five through six, John says to him, that's Jesus, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Now, When it says kingdom and priests, are you ready for uh, one more sample from the Old Testament? That is actually a sample from Exodus chapter 19. When God freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai and he said, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests." Here's what this means. A priest's job is to help other people come into the presence of God. God is saying, I want to make you a kingdom of priests so that you can welcome the whole world into my presence. God's vision is that the whole world would see him as he really is, that the whole world would find healing and renewal and happiness and fulfillment in God. And he's saying that when you become a Christian, you become drafted into this mission Because here's our situation. You know, we live in a world in which we're constantly being taken captive by all kinds of false pictures of reality. And if that's our situation, then being freed from those false pictures of reality and liberated into an accurate picture of reality means two things. First, it means that we are now able to find happiness and fulfillment in God. But second, it means that we help others find happiness and fulfillment in God. And listen, I understand we live in a pluralistic culture. That means that there are lots of different ideas out there about God and happiness and fulfillment. So who are we to tell other people about those things? In fact, many people would say, well, we should just be neutral about those things. But I would invite you to consider two things about this. And the first is this. The images that fill our culture are not neutral. The images in our culture are are bearing witness, very powerful witness to a very specific picture of reality. They're not neutral. In fact, the, the narrative of neutrality in our culture, really, that's a myth because everybody is constantly bearing witness to some picture of reality, a specific picture of reality. We're always advocating for that, from books to blogs to news shows to stump speeches to social media posts. We're always advocating for a specific picture of reality. Bearing witness to Jesus simply means advocating for an alternate picture of reality. But second, 
another way of bearing witness to Jesus in our world is by simply refusing to participate, to worship the false realities, the false pictures of reality that fill our culture. You know, in the ancient world, the first Christians refused to worship the emperor. In fact, we'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. But by refusing to worship the images of Roman power, they were bearing witness to the, to the reality of Jesus. And so in the same way, when we refuse to use things like sex, money, and power, the way our culture uses them, that's a way of bearing witness to the reality of Jesus. It's actually a protest against false pictures of reality. In fact, here's the way we could sum up the whole lesson, the whole passage this morning. It simply means this, that God wants to change our picture of reality so we can bear witness to his reality. God wants to change our picture of reality so we can bear witness to his reality. How are we going to do that? The only way we can do that is to fill our eyes and our hearts and our lives with the ultimate witness, Jesus Christ. Because verse 5 says that Jesus is the faithful witness. Now here's the question. How does Jesus bear witness to us? John says, to him, that's Jesus, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Friends, the cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate witness because it's the ultimate picture of reality. When they nailed Jesus to the cross, that was a picture of the reality that we have all been taken captive by false pictures of reality. False gods, false images that have taken us captive and lured us, tempted us into worshiping uh, something else other than God and finding happiness and fulfillment in those things instead of uh, in God. And that by doing that, we've actually violated God's love to us and we end up using and exploiting other people as a result of that. For on the cross, Jesus bore the justice that we deserve, but the cross is also a picture of the reality that God loves you so much that he would shed his own blood in order to free you from false pictures of reality and give you the exalted privilege of being called one of his precious children. Friends, the, the cross of Jesus Christ, there is no other reality like that reality. In ancient Rome, the cross was an image of torture and shame and, and rebellion and death. But in the hands of Jesus Christ, the cross has been transformed into an image of reconciliation and honor and joy and life. Dear ones, I encourage you this morning, let the cross fill your eyes. Fill your heart and your eyes and your life with the cross of Jesus Christ. Let it bear witness to you of the ultimate, truest picture of reality. God wants to change our picture of reality so we can bear witness to his reality. Do you have an accurate picture of reality? Let your eyes feast on the cross of Jesus Christ. Let it fill your heart with his love and turn you into a witness to his reality. Let's pray.